Kia ora, welcome to Power Up Podcast, powered by Venture Taranaki and produced by Raw Collective. We're celebrating the success of remarkable Taranaki entrepreneurs, highlighting their stories and showcasing the best of work and play in this exceptional region. This season, we're talking to trailblazing enterprise owners and founders, young and the not-so-young, in energy, skincare, coffee, engineering, manufacturing, and food. And it's no exaggeration to say that some are genuine world leaders in their fields, pioneering positive global change while living the famous Taranaki like no other lifestyle. I'm your host, David Downs. Now let's discover why Taranaki is a region where unique natural and business environments collide, enabling people to flourish, both at work and home. No my, hide my, we welcome you to hear our enterprising future like no other. Today's guest is Steve from Rivet. On the Rivet website, Steve Scott is described as director, owner, and larrikin. If there was ever someone to make stainless steel and sheet metal fabrication exciting, Steve is the man. Rivet's work is all over Taranaki, from the iconic Len Lai facade to the custom-made still at Juno Gin, all the way down to your broken teapot handle. They do the things that other people can't. Their expertise is perhaps only exceeded by their character. As good as they are, they're even better people. Steve talks through the twists and turns of a family-owned business that's become highly sought-after metal producers of art, architectural installations, home finishes, and much, much more. In amongst all of that, the value Steve places on people is front and centre. From customers and employees to his work enabling pathways for young people into trades, Steve's approach to treating people well is infectious. Let's get into it. Well, welcome Steve, nice to have you here. Oh, thanks for the invitation to be involved. Where did you come from today? Well, I'd like to say fishing, but I've actually come from the office. Damn! Yeah, yeah. You look like you've just come from fishing. You look swarthy today. (laughs) Oh, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) That's a compliment. What what are you working on at the moment? What's going on in the factory or the shop? Oh, well, you know, just back in the new year, so it's a little bit of a messy time where not all the suppliers are open and companies aren't open and some of the staff aren't back. They're still on holiday, so it's really trying to get the momentum going for the year. Yeah. And um, we've been working on some shutdowns over the break, so we're tidying up after those. Yeah. And um, setting up a couple of reasonable projects for the next couple of months. Fantastic. Mm. And so Rivet's been around how long? 30 years and three weeks. 30 years in three weeks or and three weeks? And three you weeks. You passed so, the 30-year um, mark. Yeah, yeah, so 19th of December was our celebration of 30 years in business. That's incredible. So you yeah, set it up when you were 10? No, no, 12. Maybe <laughs> 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 yeah. And obviously you've grown from strength to strength. You're doing all sorts of innovative things now. Yeah, well, it's like any business or opportunity, you know, you've got to be evolving and changing as you go. Yeah. And we're certainly a lot different to what we started with 30 years ago. And we've had a crack at some good stuff that we've really enjoyed and we've had some stuff that wasn't so good and, you know, and you dive away from that. But, yeah, look, all in all, 30 years has been fantastic. If you were to say in a nutshell, what does Rivet do? Let's just sort of elevate a pitch. We like to do the stuff that other people don't want to do. You know, if it's too hard or too expensive or it can't be done, then we'd like to have a crack at that. But, you know, our typical month could be anything from making a stainless steel sink bench and handrails through to some maintenance work at food manufacturing or architectural bespoke type facades. And Go, that's quite a variety. Yeah, real big variety and in a full range of metals too. So we're not just stainless steel. Oh, stainless right. steel, alley, brass, copper, aluminium. I always learn so much when I do these podcasts. I never really think about the material being important, but are there particular things that are harder to work with than others? People. 
Yeah, yeah, people are. <laughs> but in terms of metals, first of all. Um, no, I think, you know, it comes with experience and our guys are all trade qualified and our apprentices are going through the um, ITOs. So you learn a lot of it from that. But experience hand down through the senior guys is where you pick up most of those yeah. techniques. That sort of tradition of artisan craftsmanship, of passing it on to the next generation. Yeah, it is. And especially in a workshop like ours where we're not a manufacturing or repeat manufacturing type business, a lot of our stuff is one-off and bespoke. Yeah. So a lot of that is learnt on the job and handed down through experience. Speaking of which, can I see your hands? Oh, yeah, they look like, yeah, you're on. You're still on the tools by the look of those hands. Yeah, well, I, I like to get on the tools when I can, and certainly over this um, Christmas break, uh, we, were, we were mean down, so I got really desperate, and I, and I had my hands out and my tools out doing a bit, so, Would yeah. you consider yourself the best in the workshop or to no, no, defer not to at, others now? No, not at all, because I'm actually not a sheet metal worker or engineer myself. I'm a registered electrician by trade, <laughs> so um, yeah, it's quite an interesting combination. Had always wanted to be a sheet metal worker, but didn't get the opportunity when I needed to get out of school before I got kicked out. And um, so I took an electrical apprenticeship and really enjoyed that. And then, like I said, had the opportunity 30 years ago to um, start up a sheet metal and fabrication business right. with my dad and my brother. Fantastic. So, yeah, yeah. And how long were you a Sparky for? Oh, about 10 years. Yeah? Yeah. You were getting good electric shocks? No, no, I was a bit too cautious probably. But, <laughs> you know, it was a, it was an interesting job. It was a simple family business where you did everything from sweeping the floor through to yeah. domestic wiring, fixing toasters, and a little bit of light industrial. Yeah. Um, and I enjoyed the background of that. And then I moved into oil and gas electrical for five years and then had this opportunity to, to start what we've got. And did you grow up in Taranaki? Yep, born and bred on Frankly Road, actually, so haven't moved too far. That's good. Worked out of town for about four years when I first finished my apprenticeship, just contracting wherever they needed a sparky to fill a gap, and I just went and worked in Wakatani at Bay Milk and Hamilton, Auckland, Hawke's Bay. What was it like growing up in Taranaki? It's a great upbringing, and as a family me and my brother and sister were spoiled. You know, we, we were on a farmlet on the outskirts of town. We had the best of both worlds. You know, we certainly enjoyed, you know, the rural life as well as, you know, working in town and what um, New Plymouth had to offer 45, 50 years ago. And speaking of your family, it was mm. your dad, I think, that started Rivet. Was that right? No, no, that, that's a bit of a misconception. It was started by dad, myself, and my brother Grant together. Ah. Yeah. You so, want to stake your claim early in yeah, this Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Well, I'm the last one left, you see, so it's all about me now. But um, 30 years ago, Dad was doing a bit of sheet metal work from home on the family farm. That's his trade. And my brother was in London looking to come home, and I was working on offshore oil rigs. And an opportunity came up to buy into a sheet metal and heating business, and the three of us got together and said, let's give this a crack. Good Lord. And that's how it started. And did one of you have some skills in sheet metal? Cause it, yeah, Dad. Dad did. Yeah, okay. he, how, he's, how did he he's do that? He's a time-served sheet metal fabricator, and... His father, my grandfather, was a tinsmith in an old house just down here on Young Street. God and man. I can remember going there when I was about nine or ten. So, you know, bending tin or banging tin or welding steel is in the genes or in the blood. Yeah. I like that. And um, you're happy to have followed that passion, I guess. Fantastic. And what sort of projects did you work on in the early days? Oh, yeah, pretty simple, really simple ducting style of jobs and making flue components, um, handrails sink benches, bit of maintenance work at Teagle Foods. We were a small team of six back then. Yeah. So, you know, you had to be versatile and do whatever came your way. Whatever jobs popped up. Yep. yep, yep, absolutely. But it sounds like never that mass generation of stuff. It was always in the sort of bespoke or problem solving. Yeah. 
we're not a repeat manufacturer. It's probably something more for the bigger centres in our trade, if you like. We're better off in that bespoke or specialty work. Nice. Yeah. What's the benefits of running your own business? Why did, why did you want to set up set out on your own after only five or six years or whatever it was of being a Sparky? Oh, it just seemed like a good idea. I'm not sure it was. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a bit of hindsight. Right there. It's a hell of a learning curve, isn't it? You know, you, you go from working for somebody and living in your household and everything gets paid on the 20th and, you know, stuff just rolls, you know, and you get to the end of that first month in business and no one's paid. It was a hell of a shock. It was, um, well, everyone pays on the 20th, don't they? You know? That's right. So um, learning about business was the biggest learning curve probably in the first 12 months to two years. Yeah. I guess the reason for doing it was trying to make a difference, being in control of a destiny, which you are to a degree and to another degree you're not. Yeah. It was just a challenge. You know, just exciting at the time. A lot of people go into business thinking, I'm going to be my own boss. I, I'm free to leave at three o'clock and, you know, hit the golf course or get out on the boat or, you know, freedom. But it actually works the other way. You end up working much, much harder than you normally would. Yeah, yeah, you do. And I guess when you've got your passion invested and, and your house invested and, and everything, you know, that's what keeps you there to do it. Yeah. But, you know, you, you get to a point where you're responsible for, you know, other families when you've got employees and you get attached to what they do in, in the community as well. That's right. And so you have to be there. So when it's tough, you still need to dig deep. So you went from making like ducting and benches and things like that, and no disrespect, that's difficult stuff, to what has to be almost the masterpiece, the sort of pièce de résistance, which is the Lenlai Centre. Yep. It's just like a big jump in my mind from going to making a few things in a bench to suddenly decorating the most iconic building in, yeah. in the region, if yeah. not nationally. Yeah, so we took that job on when I was off my medication. <laughs> well, I was wondering if the guy that designed it is on some sort of medication because they oh, couldn't yeah. build a straight wall, could no, they? No, you couldn't. It yeah, made, made it really that. easy for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's an interesting project. I mean, the minute we heard about it, to have a job like that in your hometown where your workshop is in a regional town, you know, that don't come along very Did often. Did you sort of say, we want that job? I want that job. Yeah. That's going to be our flagship. Yeah. And um, prior to that, our biggest job was about, $200,000 project, you know, and that there's north of $2 million. So, you know, we, we jump right in, you know. And then I used my dad as a bit of a sounding board back then too because he was a sheet metal worker and um, he said, well, it's probably not possible, so I think you should probably flag it. Oh, really? He's, yeah. he's, come on, boy, just yeah. chill. Yeah, you know, yeah. Cool yeah. your jets, mate. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, uh, it's beyond yeah, your capability. Yeah, yeah. You're a sparky, remember, not a sheet metal worker. So so I took his advice and didn't listen to it. That's good. And um, and we punched on through the consultation process with Patterson's, the architects, the council, and Cleveland's construction. Yeah. And we sat around the table like we are today to work out how it could be done. Yeah. And I had an idea and I figured it could be done and we got the project. What was the brief for it? Was it like build a big wavy curtainy type thing on the front of the building or just go nuts, lads, do what you want? Not exactly. Um, Andrew Patterson obviously is an architect that's got great vision and I guess love him or hate him or love him or hate the building, you know, it is different, you know, and that's where an architect comes into their own. I guess um, my challenge was to try and tame him a little bit to make it achievable. Yeah. You know, oh, is this is this the watered down version? This is the watered. No, this oh, is God. this is the vision. So he created an image of what he wanted to look like, and then it was up to me to work out how to get it done. And when the job was first put out for tender, I didn't agree with the methodology that had been suggested, so I declined to tender, despite the fact that I wanted the job. Wow! And so I just pointed out, you know, my concerns and. Some of that was around material selection, some of them was around material grade and location to the sea and the salt, 
all those things. And actually what happened is that they got a couple of prices in which were way off the mark, and so they decided to have a listen to what maybe I thought. And they refined the specifications based on your it's, it's What it looks like is what they wanted. What's actually there and how we got there is completely different. Wow. Yeah. So you got the outcome they wanted, but in the, you took your own expertise and yeah. that of your team. Yeah. And I guess it comes back to that team thing. I could see it. I knew how to get there. I didn't know how to form it. I don't know how to weld it, but I certainly got the blokes and the ladies that can do that. Yeah. And so it's very much a team project. Yeah. Mm. And that's probably with all our projects, you know, with having a managing director that's a sparky. You know, you are reliant on the skills of your people. Well, it's probably a benefit to them that you don't really know what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> In the nicest possible way. And they can try and pull one across me, can't they? But, yeah. you know, I've been there 30 years, so I've seen most of the mistakes and I've found the stuff tucked out the back that hasn't quite worked out right that I didn't know about. So... I actually think it's a good combination because from a sales or innovation perspective, as a non-sheet metal worker or engineer, I see things slightly different. Right. And what we're seeing now with some of the work, there's a lot more automation. And so that old electrical knowledge gives you an understanding still of what how maybe how engineering and electrical and automation comes together right. to help create that turnkey sort type of machinery, of, the specialist machinery and that sort of thing. And yeah. That, ah. yeah, yeah. Just going back on the Len Lai though, mm. I just had a look at it before. Mm. I couldn't find any rivets. Are there rivets? There are. Are they? Are they but, hidden? But they're so well designed and thought out by me that you can't see them. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> they're on the internal faces. Right. So, so that, that's what, I mean, to the extent that you can explain it to a complete novice like me, mm. how do you engineer? I mean, how many bits of sheet metal are there on that building? 540. 540. Each one of them special position has yeah, to be. Yeah, of the 540 panels, there's um, from memory eight different variations. So there's eight panels multiplied out to get to 540. Oh, different. So, and then you, you combine them in different variations. Correct, yeah, and a jigsaw. That. So when you look at the building, you've got a facade that's made up of like triangular forms and one form is thin at the bottom, thick at the top, and the next one's the opposite. And it repeats like that down the building. So half of all the columns are the same and the other half right. of the columns are the same. It allows you that flexibility. flexibility. Even though yeah. when you look at it, because of the way the light works on that building, the beautiful mm. reflection on the on the steel, mm. you don't necessarily see the repeating nature. You no. see it looks like a rippling curtain. Yeah. Or... And that's due to the reflectiveness of it and, you know, what it takes in from the clouds and the sky and the buildings around it and stuff like that. Stunning. So, yeah. What is the actual material? Is it stainless steel? Yeah, it's stainless steel, and um, it's 316, which is a marine grade. Oh, yeah, 316. thought that when I saw it. You didn't, you? Yeah, thought, yeah, 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 I thought that, yeah. Yeah, 316, which is a marine grade, and that was one of the concerns I had in the beginning is it wasn't that great. Right. And, you know, we were effectively in the, in the sea, and it's a number eight finish, which means it's mirror finish. That's the highest finish that you can get on stainless steel. And so for me, that's really important because anything that's less than number eight has a, a texture under a microscope that looks like sandpaper. And that's where the dust and the salt and that sits. And that's where the tea stain and all the brownness comes from. Um, oh, and you steel. see some buildings or some, you know, and sometimes it's on purpose, but other yeah. times maybe not. Yeah. So do they have to get out there and, and buff it up and polish no, it and stuff? No, can't touch it. just needs to be washed with fresh water and, and a neutral detergent. 
How often do they? About once a year. The best thing for it is to be washed with fresh water, and, you know, we're blessed in Taranaki with a bit of rainfall. Oh, that's one way to put it. Yeah, you know. So, it's a blessing. Yeah, it's a blessing. And um, <laughs> But it's a bit like your house, you know. It's just the feet and that those top weatherboards that always need washing. Yeah. It's the bits that are tucked around by the windows that don't quite get the driving rain on Correct. them, the, the yeah, yeah. Oh, sideways rain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not that we get it here in Taranaki. No, no. And the other thing that was really important is that, you know, we're so close to the sea, but our sand is iron sand, you know. So iron sand is what they make carbon steel out of, rusty steel. So that sand's really good at rusting stainless steel. Yeah. And so, you know, when you're on the East Coast or where there's gold sand, the problems are completely different. And that was another one of the issues that I felt with the original design. You knew. You're a, you're a boy of Taranaki, you know, West Coast. We've polished enough stainless to know the, what it does if you don't get it right. So, Trying to tell these yeah. architects it's not yeah. how it's done around here. But it is like, I mean, you do get the odd bit of wind and it blows a bit of sand and that basically mm. could corrode or abrade it. So. Yeah, but it's a, it's a smooth surface, so, you know, it, it washes off and it's Amazing. that number eight mirror. Yeah. Is that the most challenging job you've ever done? Yeah, without doubt. Without doubt. I've priced another two that are more challenging in that sense that we weren't successful in, um, but, yeah, without doubt, the most challenging. Gosh. Yeah. I mean, every job has its challenges, but if it's only a $50,000 job, you know, you're only losing your shoes, not the house. Eh? Yeah. So, you know, challenging technically and risk-wise, yeah, without a doubt. Would you do it again if the I'd job do it tomorrow? Can... Yeah. Yeah. Everyone said, it can't be done, you'll go broke. We did it, and it's the best job we've ever done in terms of a, of a business project. So I would do one every day of the week if I could. <laughs> could just imagine your team listening to this podcast going, no, no, no don't, don't put us through that again. We've had enough. Get off that. Yeah. What does it do for your reputation, though, having such a signature piece? That's oh. literally on, you know, around the world, when they show shots of New Zealand, they yeah. often show yeah. your work. Yeah. I guess it's put us on the map in some ways, you know, positive. But there's been some negative feedback too over the years where people go, oh, they only want to do the big stuff now. Well, right. you know, we've done... Can't get my bench fixed. Can't get my bench fixed because they're too busy with the big stuff. Well, that's not true, you know. But uh, prior to COVID, we were working on some really good architectural work in Auckland, which were significant jobs. And they came off the back of the recommendations from that job and architects and had seen it. And I was in, in Auckland peddling you know, what we could do. Great. So you the know, reputation builds around Reputation that. builds yeah. around that. And then it all got cut off at the knees when COVID came It'll out. Come so. It'll come back. Yeah, maybe. Architects always want to do weird things with buildings. Yeah. So you'll yes, be sold after. Yes, they do. But, you know, COVID throws in that whole travel into regional, that traffic yeah. light system can make it really complex. Because, you know, that kind of work that we do, you can't just put a subcontractor on it. I've got to have my people on the ground. Right. Yeah. 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 And on the ground, speaking on the ground, your people are based here. Yeah. Have there ever been a temptation to move the business out mm. of Taranaki? No, because I didn't want to move out. Yeah. Yeah. Can yeah. you find the talent and the people? And Oh, yes, but, you know, we try and make our people through training. You know, and apprentices and stuff like that, you know, somebody was brave enough to give me a crack. We have to do the same for our young people. I love that. And are there benefits to running a business here? Oh, I think so. I mean, look at today. Ah, it's it's one out of the box. It is, you know, and um, what I like about the province is it is really accessible. You know, you're only 15 minutes from one side of town to the other. There's plenty of activities and there's a good variety of work type, you know. We're quite a progressive little city. Yeah. And, And I think that's really cool. That's right. You're not yeah. stuck on one type of manufacturing. No. Tell you what, there's also that's here, you'll know this, is some good gin. I do. No, you I know a lot about it because uh, on the last one of these podcasts, we talked to uh, the, the team from Juno. Dave and Joe. Dave and Joe. And they told us about the still that you made for them, which I can't remember the name of. They had a name. 
Leela. Um, Leela, that's it. Mm. So that's another amazing bespoke. Yeah, that, that's probably our most enjoyable project <laughs> because we get <laughs> to taste testing. the fruits of it. <laughs> and look, and that's interesting because uh, they came to town, resettled back here, and they were looking for a gin that was Taranaki gin and they wanted a still built in Taranaki. Mm. And no one builds stills in Taranaki, in fact, not really in New Zealand. No. And they were with Venture Taranaki and Eve Koana Brown said, well, if anyone's going to have a crack, why don't we ring Steve Scott? Because he did the Len Lai. So we ended up building a still out of doing the Len Lai. <laughs> Fascinating project. Yeah. You know, interesting people. We knew nothing about distilling. We knew everything about copper and stainless steel. And between us, we, we built that machine and that's distillery. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. It's a quite a big machine, isn't it? It's a metre oh, or two. Yeah, it holds 400 litres of raw oh, juice hell. before you dart distilling. So it's a good commercial size. And, look, we've learnt so much from that. We did another one late last year for Hokanui Moonshine in oh, yeah. Gore. Yeah. And um, we're just in the middle of doing another one now for a company south of Hokitika. Oh, you're going to get a bit of a reputation here. Yeah, well, it's quite a good sales pitch is that, you know, we like them to come and commission it and you. test it with us. Yeah. And because the, the good thing about that is we get to keep the byproduct and bottle it That's and right. it keeps us going to the next one sells. So, yeah. When you build a still that can hold 400 litres, I mean, it's mm. a big amount of weight and pressure. Mm-mm. You've got to No pressure. No? No, so it's open vented, so th- there's no bombs taking place or right. anything like that. But uh, hazardous goods, you know, because you're dealing with alcohol, alcohol. and ethanols and that kind of but thing. But it's also, so. from the point of view, just the weight of that liquid pushing against the wall, you must have to think about the engineering of it in a special yeah. way. Their one's not a lot different to the size of a domestic hot water cylinder. Oh, okay. And they're under pressure. This is not under pressure, so it's the pressure that causes the problem. Right. So, and it's got built-in uh, safety features and yeah. stuff like that. So it's well and I also understand that they wanted it to be waste-free, so it to collect solid and liquid waste and that yep. sort of thing, yeah? Yeah, we worked through all that with them. You know, that's part of the journey of business these days is looking at that environmental yeah. and the good story, isn't it? And yeah, uh, for them... They're a great story, and um, we're just doing a bit more work for them again at the moment, actually. Oh, brilliant. So, yeah. so when, you, when you're going to design something like that, what, do you jump on YouTube and sort of find a clip of how to build a still, or you, is it your, your team sitting around going, right, I think we could do this? No, it's more of a partnership with the customer, you know, like they're a great example, and so is Len Loy, where the client knew what they wanted, they just didn't know how to do it. Yeah. You know, we knew how to do it, we didn't know well, you want the it. recipe. That's right. You know, so to me it's more around collaboration. I mean, you can Google and YouTube, but you've got to get on the right wavelength with the customer. Yeah. And we're still really big on that consultive type of approach and selling and delivering the project. And normally I'm the first point of contact in the business for that. That's probably... What I enjoy doing and, and my forte is getting around and going, well, yep, of course, anything's possible, but what about or what if we consider and, you know, just keep narrowing it down till we get to where we need to be. Yeah. yeah. What other projects have you done that stand out for you? Yeah, we did a big job at the Aotea Centre in Auckland, cladding a lot of internal fit out there with copper and brass, aged, so artificially aged, so it looked like old material that was new a week ago. Wow. And we created that at work. That was a really interesting job. It comes with its own complications working out of town with high-end architecture work as opposed to shipping off a bench or a right. tank or something. Yeah, think about the shipping very carefully. Yes, and, and, and the site measuring is all, you know, one-off type stuff. So that, that took a lot of my time, but a really cool job. Um, we did half a dozen buildings in Auckland where they were refurbishing multi-level buildings and wanting to put internal staircases in. And so we would create the staircase in, as a Meccano set 
and put it in the building and then clad it in stainless or brass or something like that. We, we had a reputation for that prior to COVID again. Yeah. Cool work, quite high risk, and just made more complicated by being remote, but yes. um, really enjoyable. On a more practical side of things, you know, conveyors and products or benches and that move product to make oh okay make things easier. Actually, like, yeah, that's a different thing again, the engineering yeah, of that. quite different. And that's, again, that's that combination of engineering and, and electrical coming together, you know, and we, and we did quite a good design build project with Teagle late last year and, you know, quite high stakes there because it has to work or no birds get yeah. processed that day. Oh, heck. A lot of testing and proving before you get to the shutdown and swap it in. So yeah, lots of interesting stuff. Yeah, you've, you've built a bit of reputation about doing the tricky stuff, isn't it, about yeah. doing the things that others find hard. Yeah. It yeah. attracts you, does it? It attracts me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would rather be looking at that. I mean, it solves the problem for the client. And it's good for us. My guys enjoy, you know, the variety of work that comes with that as opposed to just banging out widgets or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So it's good all round. The disadvantages is that you're always on the hunt for that next thing, whereas yeah. if you're making widgets or That's right, you get a steady bang, stream. bang, 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 yeah. but, you know, that doesn't excite doesn't, me. No, it doesn't. No. I can see that That's about not you. Happen, no. you got a glint in your eye. <laughs> now, you did an award-winning project recently with Howard Tuffrey. Oh, yes, Light on the Land. What's that? That's the um, sculpture just down to the uh, western side of the Windwand where Nancy, the client, wanted to gift a sculpture to the city as part of, I think it was her her family's inheritance money. And so they came to us and said, um, we'd like to build this out of a solid block of stainless. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was a couple of problems. They don't make it that big. We can't ship it. We can't cut it. We can't handle it. How about we do it this way? (laughs) But apart from that, we're in. Yeah, and that's a project that came straight off the back of Len Lai. And the original brief from Nancy to Howard was um, for it to be a stone sculpture, but there's no rocks that big either. So just not practical to do it. And he said, well, why don't we use Taranaki stone, which is stainless steel? (laughs) So, yeah, really cool project. And, again, great people to work with, all done from sketches and a little paper mache model and voila. Wow. And did you get the same sort of controversy as the wind wand when it went in? No. People liked it. Well, it wasn't council money. But, you know, the day we, we moved it along the foreshore and placed it into position, one person did say um, over the fence, I don't like it when the council spends money on art. Well, you know, you politely say, well, that's good. It's I'll... a democratic process and, by the way, it's not their money anyway or yeah. yours. Good so, on you. Yeah. Good on you. It's quite nice to be able to wander down and see you work like that, though, yeah. standing out there. Is it holding up well under the elements? Yeah, yeah, the... The element's no problem. It's been used as a slide by some of the, the younger kids, and it's not really that, but it wouldn't be right to put something on to stop it either because it would detract from the art right. that it is. And the first couple of times it looks really bad, but it kind of weathers and get, and it's kind of yeah. part of it, I think. Now. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Now, you were telling me earlier, from a business point of view, you've been in, in business 30 years plus now. Mm. You yourself have been working there on the tools, in the job, full time, the whole time. Mm. But you now have sold the, a little bit of the business, mm. allowing investment to come in. Yes. Tell us about that. How, what was it like giving up the reins of the business that you've been in charge of for so long? Oh, it's quite easy, really. I think every business goes through a phase, and certainly the owner does. You know, 30 years has gone in a blink, so what does the next 30 years look like? And I certainly won't be there. I've got no intention of being there in 10 years, let alone 30 years. It's my job to leave it in a place for the future. And um, while I have three sons, 
none of them are sheet metal workers, and I wouldn't encourage them to come into the business. They need to choose their own careers, and they've done that, and I'd rather support them in what they want to do. Yeah. So it's about bringing young people through, and I like the model that um, XL Taranaki or XL Refrigeration have in their business. So we had a discussion with them, and they've brought 25%, and that's about succession planning and developing the business beyond the owner that's been there for 30 years and making sure it's around for a bit longer. That's great. Mm. Well, with the heritage and the pedigree that you've got, it sounds like it will be. It will be. We have to make sure it does, don't we? Now, I've got a few final questions for you. Sure. You know, rapid fire, Mm -hmm. fast four. Mm -hmm. What excites you most about the future of Taranaki? I think the progressiveness of the community and whether that's the businesses or the people or the sports clubs or the families, the people that are coming here because they can see it. I mean, we've known, but people are coming here. I just think we're very forward thinking in what a small regional city has to offer compared to others. Brilliant. Mm. All right, myth busting. What have you heard people say about Taranaki that just isn't true? That we're all oil and gas. Yeah. And we're a lot more than that. And, you know, we do work in that sector and they're a massive contributor to the economy. But there's a lot of industry, dairy food processing, small shops, retail, small manufacturing. Yeah, those people are just as important. So we are a lot more than what people think. Exactly. What's your perfect day in Taranaki? Perfect day would be um, hopping on my motorbike and going to Wonga for a beer, one, and uh, then shoot home, jump on the jet ski and have a fish. What would you say to someone who's considering making the move to Taranaki? Get on it. Yeah? Get on it. And if you want any good reason to do it, get my number and I'll tell you why you should. (laughs) It's a great place, I think, for family or retirement. There's a lot going on here that is somebody will find always find something that suits them or spins their wheels. Brilliant. Steve, mm. thank you so much for your time. No worries at all. Thank you for having me. Kilda. Thanks so much for listening, and a special thanks to Venture Taranaki for making the Power Up podcast possible. If you're an entrepreneur at any stage of your life looking to get a new venture off the ground in Taranaki, talk to Venture Taranaki. With a network of experts, Venture Taranaki can help with one-on-one startup clinics, mentoring, workshops, connections, business and investment advisor support, all that you need to bring your idea to life. If you're not familiar with Taranaki, come and take a look. There's something here for everyone. With a supportive business community, vibrant towns, unrivaled experiences and abundant nature, Taranaki is humming. Your entrepreneurial flair, enterprise and career will flourish here and you and your family can make Taranaki your home. And lastly, please rate, review and subscribe. It helps others find us. 